don't know about you, but it seems like lately all we are hearing is bad news. Um, from the troubles that we're having with our economy right now to the flooding down south. I don't know if I actually heard the final uh, death toll on uh, some of the floods that swept through some of our southern states, but it was, it was devastating. And, and then you put on top of that all of the other scares that are, are, are part of our news cycle. And if it wasn't bad enough, and I grew up in the era where you got your news off the three channels on TV and the newspaper, well, that's all changed. And with the rise of social media, it seems like bad news travels much quicker and much further than it ever has before. I don't know if you've recognized, but when it seems like all we're hearing is bad news, um, there's this problem that occurs. It's a cycle or a rut that we fall into, that after a while we see everything through the lens of this badness, that everything we look at in this life is a problem that needs to be solved, and rarely do we get the opportunity to actually stop and catch our breath and give thanks to God for all the good things and the right things. Part of this cycle is, and maybe the best is just for me to illustrate it, oftentimes the problems are so many and they're right in front of our faces that we don't see the solution, the godly solution that he offers to us. It's really quite obvious and it's at our immediately at our immediate disposal and yet we don't take advantage of God's solutions. If I could give you a parody to describe what that's like, and we Christians can fall into this too, it would be kind of like this. Whoa, that's not good. Oh, I don't need this. I'm already late. Somebody will come. Anybody out there? Do you have a phone? No. Sorry. Somebody! Hello? There are two people stuck on an escalator and we need help. Now, would somebody please do something? I don't believe this. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> I'm gonna cry. <laughs> well, there's not enough left to do. That's it. You get the point. <laughs> Nothing else left to do. Sometimes it, it feels like that. In fact, that's really where today's lesson begins. Uh, these lessons from the lesser known have been, uh, much to my surprise, not only very intriguing, but very insightful because we're going to basically step into the inner group of Jesus' disciples and from that vantage point take a look at this perspective of how everything seems to be a problem and we struggle to understand God's solutions. And the, iron, the ironic part about it is, is the answer's right there in front of us, much like in the, the video. It's just we, we sometimes feel like we're such victims or maybe that we're so helpless that we can't put one foot in front of the other and walk the way that God would have us walk. Interestingly enough, this lesson from the lesser known comes from the only statement that Scripture records that this other Judas spoke. I'm not going to say that's all that we know comes from Judas, but the only words that he ever spoke out loud are our lesson today. And you heard them at the end of the Gospel video. He has this intriguing question of Jesus. Why are you going to show yourselves just to us 
and not to the rest of the world. We're going to unpack that and see how God offers us some pretty amazing solutions, answers that have been there the entire time. Okay, as we jump into this lesson, let me just bring us up to speed because the context is Monday, Thursday evening. And by the time of our lesson, there's a great deal of activity that has already taken place. Jesus has already invited his disciples into the upper room and has welcomed them as host. And one of the things that he does in order not only to show them his hospitality, but also his love as their savior is he gets down on his hands and knees and washes their feet. And if you recall that episode at all, this was very confusing to them. Peter is the one who mainly objects, Lord, you shouldn't wash my feet. And when Jesus explains to him what he was doing, then Peter goes in the opposite direction, still very much confused. Well, then give me a whole bath and didn't make a whole lot of sense. One of the next things that takes place is that Judas, the main Judas that we know, Iscariot, is exposed as the betrayer. And even in that, there's a great deal of confusion. Oh, ask him who he means. And, and when Jesus finally turns to Judas and says, go do your dirty work, he leaves. And, and they think maybe he's going to make some donation for the poor, which couldn't be any further from the truth because he was leaving to go complete his work of betrayal. After Judas departs, it's at that point Jesus institutes the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And you can imagine, and while scripture doesn't explain it to us, you can imagine that since this was the first time this had ever been given as this amazing gift from God, they were kind of clueless what it was all about. And it was only over time and through God's help that they fully understand what it meant to eat his body and drink his blood. After that, and one of the things that just immediately precedes our lesson is that Jesus turns to Peter, and while they're having a conversation and Jesus, uh, Peter's telling Jesus how loyal he's going to be, it's at that point that Jesus prophesies to Peter, before this is all done tonight, you're going to disown me three times. And of course, Peter's head is whirling with confusion. How could that possibly be? He would be willing to die for Jesus, and now Jesus is saying he would turn his back on him. My point is, is that we are in a context of confusion, and ultimately it's guided by ignorance. And hopefully we, uh, by watching the video as well as talking about these things, can begin to appreciate and understand where this lesson is not only coming from, but how it's being taught to us. There are so many things in this life that we completely do not understand. There are so many wise things of God that are beyond human comprehension. There are so many things, even clearly taught in Scripture, that unless we're willing to roll up our sleeves and dig in and do the hard work, we remain ignorant of both the comfort and the beauty of God's ways of answering life's problems. And so I hope we can put ourselves in the same situation as his disciples on that night because then his answer is not only amazing, but it is really the thing that brings us the peace that we seek. Okay, now, as these events are unfolding, you should understand what finally pushes the disciples over the edge is Jesus' description of what's now going to take place. He talks about in the coming hours he's going to suffer and ultimately die to pay for the sins of the world. Doesn't make sense to them, and, and we'll unpack why that is. He talks about going away and then coming back. For a very short time, he's going to be visibly unavailable to them. And they've had this very close working relationship with Jesus for, over th for about three years, and now all of a sudden Jesus is saying that's going to go away from them. And the thing that finally, the straw that breaks the camel's back is this discussion about the glories of heaven. And you might think, well, that's weird. They're the disciples. They've spent all this time with Jesus. They should understand what the end goal of all this is. But they don't. 
to be quite honest, and to put it as simply as I can, the closest disciples of Jesus Christ are clueless when it comes to an eternity from, uh, separate from this earth and spending it with God in a close relationship that he always has wanted for us to enjoy. And all of these things are filling their heads and are heavy on their hearts as they now prepare to leave the upper room to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where everything Jesus talks about would now be set into motion. Now, here's the things that you need to understand, and, and it's a beautiful thing uh, how God has recorded this for us. In a moment, I'll be showing you about the synoptics. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a synopsis of the, gospel, of, of the Gospels, the ministry of Jesus Christ. John is written in a completely different format and fashion, and it reveals things to us that the other three don't. And one of the things is when you start to pull out some of the events of that night, you see that it was the Holy Spirit taking John to record this confusion of the disciples. So as Jesus is talking about these things, these imminent things that must happen, Peter's the one that first raises this question. So where are you going, Lord? They're thinking in physical terms, that there's going to be this physical separation, and that's not at all what Jesus was talking about. Then Thomas follows up. It's like Jesus says, well, you know where I'm going. And Thomas goes, well, we don't. Uh, you haven't answered Peter's question where you're going, so how on earth can the rest of us know how to get there? And I don't know if you recall then in the video, Philip's answer to all of this. And, and it's such an interesting way in which the disciples are looking at these things. This is Philip's solution. Lord, we're confused. We're upset. Everything that you've been teaching us is frustrating us. Maybe the answer to all this, Jesus, would simply be if you could show us the visible nature of God the Father. That'll calm our hearts. That'll bring us some peace. That'll let us know that everything is going to be all right. To which Jesus responds, Philip, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. We're inseparable. And you should have understood those things. And then the fourth and final question is the one that we're going to study. And it's the one of the other Judas. This question about showing himself to them, but not to the world. See, sometimes what happens is when we study scripture, we give the disciples a little bit too much credit. We put them into our camp of understanding and fail to remember that we've got uh, thousands of years of hindsight behind us. Plus, remember that the disciples didn't have the New Testament when these things are transpiring. This was all going to be revealed to later generations through the inspiration of the 27 books of the New Testament. So we're at a great advantage over that of the disciples. And one of the best ways for me to show you what I'm talking about is this quote um, from Judaism 101. And it's simply the common concept of Messiah during that time. The term Mishiach was the, the Hebrew Aramaic way of referencing Messiah. This is what they believed. A man who would be chosen by God from the tribe of Judah, who would put an end to all evil in the world, rebuild the temple, and bring the exiles back to Israel. Mashiach would establish world peace, set up Israel as the center of the world, and in general, recreate paradise on earth. That's what they were taught. That's what they believed about Messiah. If you've ever heard the concept that Jews don't believe in a heaven, in a, in a sense that's right, but it's, it's based on this because there's no need for an eternal existence in heaven when their idea of what Messiah would do would be to basically recreate this earth as it was in the beginning. And not only would Messiah, in their minds, recreate the earth, what he would do because of the chosen nation relationship with God, he would elevate them to this uh, pinnacle status uh, where they would not only be co-rulers with God himself, but they would enjoy all the pleasures of earth because that's what they thought they deserved. 
So hopefully now you can begin to understand where some of these questions are coming from and why they so terribly misunderstood what Jesus was teaching them. He was laying out for them step by step God's fulfillment of the original promise of rescuing mankind from sin and hell, and yet they are just completely lost when he describes for them the, the sacrifice he's about ready to make. And unfortunately, within these closest disciples back then, we can see just a little bit of ourselves. And maybe the way for us best to understand that from our perspective is to get to know this other Judas just a little bit better. That's the way John describes him. Then Judas, and notice how he's identified, not Judas Iscariot. Because of the two Judases of the 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot is the more famous, or probably more accurate would be the most infamous of all of the disciples. He's the one that gets the most name recognition, but then there's this other disciple by the name of Judas. And to be quite honest, most of us, and I know for most of my life, I never had a clue who this man was. So here's where we connect some dots, because like many things in Scripture, you can't go to any one chapter or verse where it says, well, this is Judas, this is all of his relationships. We have to do a little bit of work. Now, I told you about the synoptics. This is a compilation of what the three synoptics describe for us about the 12 men that Jesus chose. And of course, some of them are much more famous than others, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And then if you get down to the bottom, you start to see these other Judases. There's a couple things we need to understand how names worked back then. Well, there's some similarities with today. There are some uh, huge differences. One is, is that oftentimes the names were chosen for people back then uh, based on uh, not only who they were, but who they were becoming. Uh, so for instance, when Jesus changed Peter's, or Simon's name to Peter, he was, he was in a sense identifying a bit of Peter's personality. Uh, that rock-like personality. And in many ways, while Peter was very faithful, I think maybe Jesus was using it more from the, the context of, you know, you're kind of stubborn, uh, like a rock. You just, you just don't change your mind, Peter, do you? Um, uh, another one would be uh, James and John. Uh, they were known as Bonerges, sons of thunder, because they had fiery personalities. I don't know if you recall this episode. As Jesus was going through the various villages, one village rejected his presence, and, and it's James and John that turned to Jesus and go, should we call down uh, devastation on this village? I mean, they were ready to let him have it. And so you see some of this personality coming through. But there's other components to names that I, I think we don't fully appreciate. Um, for instance, the multiple names. This Judas was also known as Thaddeus. It's his surname. Or Labius. It's another way in which he's referred to. And sometimes the multiple names come as a result that it was a multi-language uh, uh, society. They spoke Aramaic and they spoke Greek. And you see that even in the name of our Savior. Uh, if you're speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, you would refer to him as Messiah. And if you were using the Greek language, he would be referenced as Christ. Same name, different language. So sometimes that's what's playing into it. And sometimes it's based on uh, family connections. And with that, I, ha I have to make a clarification in this list. And you'll see it especially in Luke's list. Judas, the son of James, which is not correct. It's not an accurate translation. Because what we find in scriptures, a lot of times people are identified through their relationship. Peter, uh, the brother of Andrew, James, the brother of John, or the sons of Zebedee. This literally would be translated as Judas of James. It doesn't say son. That's not in the original text. And unfortunately, the way it's translated can be a bit misleading. Um, in fact, kind of misidentifies who this Judas was. 
So I would refer to leave it uh, much more ambiguous, Judas of James, and you might go, well, okay, so what does that mean? Well, here's where some cross-referencing will do us a world of good. And let's start with this lesson from Mark 6. Uh, it's the uh, final time that Jesus is he's making his rounds through the land of Israel. He once again pr- approaches the village of Nazareth where he grew up, and he once more makes an attempt to try and make sure that the gospel message reaches his own hometown people. Remember, he had previously been rejected. In fact, they tried to kill him. Um, uh, and as he tries to tell these hometown people of his own that he is Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of God's promise, they reject him on, again. And it's based on, and they use as support as, we know this guy. And that was part of the misunderstanding about who Messiah would be. And you hear that later on. Uh, we don't know where Messiah is going to come from, which was completely false. It, it, it's supported in the Old Testament that there would be clarity as to who Messiah is. Anyway, they cite as their example that they know his half-brothers and at least two half-sisters. And they can name the half-brothers. And here we have one half-brother, James, and another half-brother, Judas. This is that Judas. He is a half-brother of Jesus. So is there anything else that helps us understand? Because sometimes it's interesting, we we see that these half-brothers of Jesus weren't immediate followers of him, but later on, as the Holy Spirit blessed them with faith, they had a deeper understanding and a better ability to comprehend how God could actually use their half-brother to be their savior. And we have insight into that when we go to our epistle lesson. And I don't know if you caught that when I introduced it and read it, but this Jude introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Jude happens to be another variation of the name Judas. And he's identifying himself as the brother of James, as we saw in that compilation of the Gospels. And the curious thing might be, well, if he's half-brother of Jesus, why wouldn't he use that as the identifying characteristic uh, to verify what he was writing was from God? And you need to understand both the timing as well as the setting of his writing. And by inspiration, the Holy Spirit has him identify himself closer to James than Jesus. This James happened to be the uh, apostle who oversaw the church in Jerusalem. And it also identifies the timing. It's very early in the growth of the Christian church. And basically what Jude, Judas is doing is he's name dropping. Everybody knew who James was. Even the non-Christian population in Jerusalem knew who James was because he was the famous apostle of the church in Jerusalem. For those who didn't know who Jesus Christ was yet, and hopefully they were opening doors to educating them, it was much wiser to identify with James. And as far as the timing goes, and this is vitally important too, is if you read further on in the book of Jude, beyond our epistle lesson, you find that the reason why the Holy Spirit had Jude, Judas write these things is because early on, as soon as the truth of God's love is shared, right there, there are going to be false teachers and the devil doing his worst, trying to undermine people's faith. And, and Jude basically was uh, commissioned by the Holy Spirit to not only fight against false doctrine, and to encourage people to have their guard up against those who would lie to them, but then also to encourage them to remain solid in their faith and to trust Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, with a fuller explanation of exactly what that meant as Messiah. Now, let me connect one more dot for you, and this is where this really gets intriguing. If we go back to Luke chapter 6, we have a, a... description of Jesus sending out the apostles, at that time disciples, the future apostles, the future leaders of the church, in pairs of two. 
And it was no accident how he chose to send them out. And, and some of this just makes sense. Uh, you would send out brothers. Peter and Andrew went out as a pair. James and John went out as a pair. Some of the other pairs I, I can't give you the insight into, but this last pairing, uh, it's just mind-blowing how God sometimes chooses to work. He sent out the two Judases as the last pair. Can you imagine some of the discussions they would have going about doing the work that Jesus gave them to do with the abilities and the power that Jesus gave them to do their work with and some of the discussions they might have had about Messiah? I would suggest that the other Judas, the lesser known one, probably was more clued in than Judas Iscariot because we find that God the Holy Spirit certainly brings clarity to the other Judas' understanding of who Jesus is and what work of Messiah is as compared to Judas Iscariot, who ultimately rejects all of those truths, turns his back on Jesus, and becomes part of the ultimate process that leads to our Savior dying on the cross. Besides the fact that we see such amazing insights of our Lord into how he chose to do his ministry, I would like us for just a moment to stop and celebrate some of the good. Sometimes people have this misinformed idea that Judas Iscariot had to be the betrayer. And that's simply not true. While the Old Testament prophesies betrayal, God did not handpick Judas Iscariot to be the one who ultimately would sell his soul and end up going to hell because he couldn't get his head around God's concept of Messiah. I would like you to appreciate and see that God gave Judas Iscariot every bit of much an opportunity and chance to know the truth as he did to the other Judas. And some of that might ultimately have been by the other Judas in their brotherly talks with each other, the questions they might have asked with each other. And it's interesting that we would find that this other Judas is the one that the Holy Spirit uses to give us insight into answering some of our own questions. And that comes in the fact of that question. Why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the rest of the world? When you see this from the vantage point of the understanding of the disciples or the misunderstanding of the disciples, his question makes perfect sense. If you're going to be a worldly Messiah who's going to come here and rescue us from the Romans, why would you only show yourself to your followers and not to the rest of the world? If you are going to take Israel and put it on top of the world and make this place perfect again and have us, if you will, for eternity, celebrate what you originally wanted for mankind on this planet, then is there any way that you can't show yourself to the rest of the world? Because the rest of the world needs to know that the nation of Israel is up here and everybody else is second class. That's how Judas is thinking. And that's where Judas's question comes from. So you understand how deeply indoctrinated this was in their minds and in their hearts. I put up here a couple of verses from Acts that take place 40 days after Jesus rose back to life, after he's had several more occasions to sit, meet, eat, and discuss with his disciples, and even on the day of ascension, they still have this misguided notion that Jesus' job was to make our lives here perfect, and they have no concept of a true face-to-face -face relationship with God for eternity in the glories of heaven. Are you at this time, Lord, going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus doesn't put them off. What he says is, I'm going to give you the same answer that I've been giving you all along, disciples. Right now, your heads and hearts are not in a place to grasp what I am doing. But I promise you, I'm going to send the comforter, the paraclete, the one who's going to make all of this clear to you.
And so you understand and have insight into what Jesus is saying, is these are things that you cannot divine by human intelligence or reasoning. These are things of God that only God himself can explain to us and show us clearly the way. It's in that frame of mind now I would like you to hear the answer that Jesus gives to the other Judas. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, Lord, how can it be that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Those who love me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and my Father and I will come to them and live with them. Those who do not love me do not obey my teaching. And the teaching you have heard is not mine, but comes from the Father who sent me. I have told you this while I am still with you. The help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and make you remember all that I have told you. Peace is what I leave with you. It is my own peace that I give you. I do not give it as the world does. Do not be worried and upset. Do not be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am leaving, but I will come back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for he is greater than I. I have told you this now, before it all happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I cannot talk with you much longer, because the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but the world must know that I love the Father, and that is why I do everything as he commands me. Come, let us go from this place. So you heard Jesus' answer to Philip and to the others. And the one word that he repeats is, is I want to give you peace. And I hope you heard it. It's peace that the world can't give you. Judas, the answer to your question is something that can only come from God. And he, he talks about obeying the Father's commands and doing as the Father has created us to do. And then he lays it out in this three-part answer. The first thing he tells to his disciples is the only answer to all of life's problems, which has been in front of you the entire time, is, is the fact that you enjoy a relationship with holy God, a relationship that you can't get to on your own. It can only come through the Son. It's a promise that God the Father made, and it's a promise that God the Son kept. And while we give thanks to God on a regular basis that we have been spared from an eternity in hell, Sometimes I think we don't appreciate enough what this relationship with God means for our lives here on this earth because it renders to us peace, the kind of peace that you can't find anywhere else. The second thing he says to Philip and the others is that this is an answer that you can only understand through the blessings of God the Holy Spirit. And I know there's a lot of things in Scripture that are very intellectual, and that's part of what I do is, is I work through them methodically. I've got questions that need to be answered, and, and some of these things are graspable by our human intelligence, which is a gift from God to begin with. But then there are so many things, and there are layers and depths to these things that can only come to us through the Holy Spirit opening our minds and hearts and enlightening us to all of the things that God wants us to have. And then finally, he says, the third part of this answer, Philip, the third part of all of this misunderstanding that you have is that for a time I will visibly leave you, 
But that doesn't mean you're on your own. Not only will I send you the Holy Spirit, but you also will live with the promise that the day is coming when I will return, when I will finally pull you out of this broken world, this world that cannot be recreated to be what it was originally intended, and I will finally give to you the life that I've always wanted you to have. Hold that in your hearts. Hold that in your minds, because ultimately that will be one of the glorious goals of Messiah. Now, let's take this lesson from this lesser known and overlay it on our own lives. Because if we're honest about it, it is difficult for us at times to stop and recognize that there's a lot of good that God has going on in this world right now. The gospel is being shared in ways that never before could have happened. People are still being brought to faith and rescued from eternity and hell by the work of the Holy Spirit. And I don't think we can stop often enough and thank God that first of all that gift was brought to us and then ultimately is shared with others. And God chooses to use us in that process. And what a beautiful and glorious process that is because it's out of our hands and it's completely on the shoulders of God, the Holy Spirit. That said, we are sometimes finding ourselves in this rut that when all we hear is the bad news, it feels like our lives here are nothing more than a problem that needs to be solved. So what is Jesus' answer to us? It's the same one that he gave to Philip. And let me try and coach it in terms that maybe um, would have struck the disciples the same way it might struck, strike us. What if I stood up here and told you that everything that you've been taught about God has been completely wrong? What if I stood up here and I had the guts to tell you that your religion is full of lies and misunderstandings and confusions? And while I'm not that crass and bold, I will tell you that there are parts of things that we have learned that are simply not true. We have been indoctrinated in ways that I fear match that of the disciples. Well, what's this guy talking about? Maybe it's my own experience, but I remember growing up, and I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor, and so from little on, I was baptized, and I learned about Jesus and God's love for us. But whenever life threw me a curveball or I faced a challenge, almost without fail, the answer I got from those who cared deeply about me and wanted to see nothing but good for me, the answer I usually got to deal with life problems was read your Bible and pray harder. And that almost sounds right, doesn't it? Until you stop to recognize there is no solution to this life that human beings can find on their own or can be given from one person to another. It never comes down to what I do. It comes down to what God has done for me and what God continues to do for me as I live in this world. Let me explain that so it has a little bit more understanding for you and hopefully something you can take home with you because your life will continue to be a challenge unless the good Lord chooses to come home sometime today and get us. The reality is, is that while it is important that we read our Bibles, it isn't enough just to read the words. The only way that we get the peace that God wants us to have, a peace that surpasses all human understanding, is to get out of the Holy Spirit's way. That means that sometimes we're going to really have to roll up our sleeves and do the hard work of working through Scripture. Now tell me, at the end of a long, hard day, you're dog-tired, how inclined are you to open up your Bible and really search through it to find the answers to life's solutions? It's not just enough to read it. God says, I want you to understand it. And you hear it in the words of obeying God. It isn't some bar that we have to clear. It's this beautiful beautiful answer that God gives to us. He says, I want you to understand that when I rose back to life, not only did I close the gates to hell, but I gave you your life back. 
And so if you're willing to trust God, the Holy Spirit, if you're willing to get out of his way, if you're willing to finally stop doing his job and let him work in you and through you, you would be amazed at how beautiful this world and this life can actually be. As broken as it is, when you understand that I make you a promise, I keep it. I have promised that while you will visibly be absent from me for a time, I haven't left you. Don't forget the other promise. I will be with you always. And the inseparable natures of Jesus Christ, if you're willing to work through Scripture and understand how God and man can no longer be separated, every place you go, every place you turn, Jesus Christ is right there with you, even though you can't see him with your eyes. God says, if you let me, I will make sure you feel him with your hearts. And the promise to come back and take us to heaven, sometimes that might be the biggest confusion of all because it almost feels like, you know what, you Christians today, you live in a broken world. Yeah, that's just the reality of it. So suck it up and just wait until the day when I finally yank you out of this place. That's small comfort for people that God says, I love you so very much. That's a small promise for a big God. And so while I wouldn't dare to say that everything you've been taught about God or your faith is wrong, I would certainly suggest that many of our understandings or misunderstandings have led us down a path that has deprived us of a beautiful peace that God has intended for us all along. Let me give you a couple examples. Right now we're going through that phase that I never thought we'd live through, but uh, maybe God's allowing it to happen for another reason than to remind us that it's foolhardy for us to take for granted all of his blessings. Because while we want to oftentimes blame this on supply chain issues, the reality is is that God chooses either to bless or withhold his blessings. And sometimes he'll use the dynamics of this broken world, and sometimes he'll do it all on his own. But the reality is, as you go up and down your stores and look at the bare aisles, you've got to ask yourself what's happening to this country and wonder, am I going to be able to buy the things that I need? God's blessed us with a brain to figure things out and to plan, and so we should, but we're never to resort to worry. Because God says, I'm with you. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. And here's maybe the most confusing thing of all, and it's confusing because I wrestle with it too. The very God that loves us enough to take care of sin, death, and hell, how on earth could he turn his back on us when it comes to groceries and gas and means of making a living? It just doesn't make any sense. The things that we allow the devil to tempt us to think and believe, when we've got this peace from God that if we're willing to take it, he longs to give it to us. This one might hit closer to home. Right now, this is the biggest health scare. and It's so different than what we've just lived through with the pandemic of the coronavirus. This one typically is spread based on whatever you think you're hearing or not hearing. It is mostly spread through godless sexual intimacy, things that God has not sanctioned. And right in front of the world's face is the answer. And while everybody's panicking and rushing to the next whatever we think we're going to do to cure ourselves, God says there is a specific way in which you can avoid this illness. He says, I've blessed you with a relationship that mirrors the relationship of the Son of God and the church. Within that relationship, there's an intimacy that is only reserved for that relationship. If you follow the design that I've given you, if you live the way that I've created you, not only do you have nothing to fear, but you can actually stand as a great witness to the rest of this world, which always is racing to fix the latest problem that we sinful mankind have created. 
God says, I want you to enjoy this kind of intimacy with one another. And one of the reasons why is because I want you to be reminded of what it means to have a relationship with God. That kind of closeness, that kind of trust, that kind of beauty and love is what God has always intended for us. And it's right there for us. It's right in front of our faces. And yet, how often do we scramble for every other answer? A peace which the world gives, which isn't peace at all. And maybe the biggest one that we have to fight is the fact that sometimes, despite everything we've been taught and everything we know to be true, we're still trying to make things right with God. You might not think so. It's not, I'm not trying to do all these good works, Pastor, to make God like me. But the reality is, is every time we feel this unbelievable burden of guilt or shame, basically what we're doing is spitting in the face of the Savior, much like the more infamous Judas did. Because somehow we think this is ours to carry. Like somehow we have to make things right because we've made things so very wrong. Jesus says, uh-uh. When they nailed me to the cross, every drop of blood, every moan and groan was given to make sure that the relationship you are meant to enjoy with God the Father is indestructible. And it means you can walk through this life with confidence and joy knowing that God has called you his own child. If we stop for a moment to celebrate what is good and right, with this relationship that Jesus himself has restored, all of a sudden life isn't this problem that needs to be solved. And unfortunately, the more famous of the two Judases never figured that out. I cannot begin to tell you why one Judas got it right and one Judas got it wrong. But I do know that Judas Iscariot tried to do it on his own. He was looking for a peace that only God could give, and it was right in front of his face, and he walked away from it. And so I pray this lesson from this lesser-known Judas helps us to understand it's right there. Whatever problem you face this week, it isn't just read your Bible and pray harder. It's listen to what God's Word says. Let it sink into your mind, into your heart, and follow the path of God. It isn't just being a better Christian. It's actually living as a child of God. And when you do that, when you get out of the Holy Spirit's way and let him actually guide you and lead you in this broken world, it isn't just a problem to be solved. It's a chance to give thanks and praise to a God who loves us, who loves us desperately. And a God who says, one day, one day, this will be nothing more than a fading memory. Until that day, hopefully, we can live more like the other Judas. He walked right next to us but we couldn't see him. Can you believe it? He was actually the one that we were looking for and hoping for, but we couldn't see him. We thought he came to redeem us from Rome, but we were so wrong. He didn't meet our expectations because our expectations were too small. We could not see him because our hurt, because of our pain, it blinded us. The doubt, the disappointment, the discouragement, was too much for us to bear. But the one walking with us began to help us see. He opened the scriptures and taught us and revealed that he was the one who bought us. We invited the stranger into our home and our hearts began to burn within. He took bread and blessed it. We were blessed because finally we could see the resurrected blessed one. He's the one that rose from the dead. 
And right in that moment, even though he disappeared from our sight, we could finally see him more clearly.